And I'm excited to be here with you. Glad that you're here. And um, just wanted to refresh our memories that we are in a sermon series entitled Incarnation. Incarnation. A couple of Sundays ago, I went in depth as to what that means, that God came in the flesh. Last Sunday, I talked about John the Baptist and him pointing to Jesus. And in that, we learned a little bit about the desert and how it was in the desert that the word of the Lord came to John. And I talked extensively in the sermon about the desert experience and how God uses that in our lives as he did in the life of Moses and Abraham and Jesus and in the entire nation of Israel. Well, this morning, this sermon is entitled Incarnation Joy. And the reason why that is is because in the high church liturgy, and I've been following the Advent liturgical calendar, the reading for this morning, and I'll read it in just a few moments, comes from the book of Matthew, where it talks to us about the Magi. But before we get there, I want to encourage you to please pay attention this morning. I'm going to be talking about incarnation joy. Now in the midst of this, and before we read the text, I want you to take just a moment and I want you to think about the episode of joy that is most recent to you sitting here. What's the episode of joy? I want you to think about that just for a moment. And as you're thinking about it, this evening we are going to have an episode of joy with this evening's vigil at 6.30. We're going to gather together to sing Christmas carols. We're going to light candles. It's going to be a candlelight vigil as we think again about the birth of Jesus and the incarnation of Christ. We're also going to anoint those who have needs with oil. We're going to lay hands on them and pray the prayer of faith that God would meet their need in their bodies, in their relationships, in their emotions, needing direction in their finances. But I want to encourage you that as you think about joy, please know this, that joy from the very beginning is a part of the Christian faith. It's part of it. But I would say, if I said, what is the word that we think about? When we think about Jesus, almost no one quickly says joy. Almost no one. And yet the Christian faith in both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke talks about joy, the joy of the people who meet Jesus as he is there in the nativity scene. I say this every time I teach or preach on Christmas. I say it every time because it's important, and it's this. Only two of the four Gospels mention Christmas. Only two of the four Gospels mention the nativity the way we see it for Christmas. And I think that's important because for the Gospel writers, the nativity is only half as important as Easter. Easter is absolutely everything. If Jesus had not been dead, buried, and resurrected, you would have never heard of Christmas, ever. So again, no, Christmas is important. The nativity is important. Every year I have to preach on this for seven weeks. And there's only two gospels that mention it. 
Every year you look at the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Matthew is about Joseph. The Gospel of Luke is about Mary. And literally for centuries, all of us pastors look at these two Gospels every year and say, Dear Jesus, please give me something new and interesting to say. Every year we pray that prayer. Now in line with this though, this coming Wednesday evening there will be an in-depth study that my son and I will lead in the Gospel of Luke at City Church Central at 7 p.m. The reason why it is true that although we read these two nativity scenes over and over and over again, in them you can literally plunge the depths of the reality of God. And so this coming Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock, my son and I will do an in-depth teaching from the Gospel of Luke last Wednesday I handled the gospel of Matthew. Now in the high holy calendar, what you will discover is that the reading for this morning is taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And I want us to read these together. Here's what Matthew brings to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Meaning the Magi, when they saw the star, they were, what's the next word? Overjoyed. And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now that's how that text from the original Greek is translated into English in the NIV. But have you ever heard someone tell a story? Maybe a group of your friends are hanging out, you're on grounds, and a group of your friends are there and someone tells a story. And when the person that tells the story leaves, you think to yourself, they missed the best part. And you grab your friends in and you pull them in and say, look, I need to tell you the rest. I've sat through a couple episodes like this recently where someone was sharing something about another person. Because that person had been in our midst and then that person left and so someone in our midst said, hey, what you need to know about this person is X, Y, or Z and they'll share it. And I'm sitting there the whole time just wanting to add because they missed the best part. That person isn't just this, this person is also these things as well. Well, listen, when the Gospel of Matthew says that the Magi were overjoyed, that is the understatement of the century. Here's why. On the big screen, I want you to notice the Greek words, there are four of them, that the NIV brought down into one word, overjoyed. So I want you to notice up on the screen. I want you to notice there are four Greek words, and I have put beneath them the corresponding English words. Now, this is what NIV translates into overjoyed. But you notice the Greek here. It's rejoiced, joy, great, and exceedingly. Those four words are boiled down into one word, overjoyed. I have to tell you, that is, again, the understatement of the century. Look at these Greek words. Do you notice the Greek word for great? What do you notice in the Greek word there? What word do you see? Mega. 
You know, if someone comes up to you and says, are you happy? And you go, I am overjoyed. What if you were to say, I am mega happy? Doesn't that make a difference? What I'm trying to say is the NIV, for whatever reason, and we use the NIV here at City. I read the NIV, I study from the NIV, but there's no possible way this is a good translation. It just simply isn't. This is exceeding mega joy. Great joy. Mega joy. I mean, this is, forgive me here, this is the Magi getting off their camels and chest bumping each other. This is, I don't care who's watching joy. This is rolling on the ground, jumping on each other. What, I don't know how else to tell you, but this is mega, mega joy. This is when magi who are dignified become incredibly undignified. This is when their journey has actually found what they're looking for. These are magi who literally run around crazy because of what they have found. Believe me, joy is more than what you think it is. Joy is something that is an unavoidable response to an encounter with Christ. And if you were to read in that text, you will notice that what it says is when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I would have written when they saw Jesus, they were overjoyed. But what you cannot know, but is important to know, is that magi are astrologers. And they believed in the ancient world, and we have definitive proof of this, that in the ancient world, peoples and almost all peoples were into astrology other than the Jewish nation. They believed there was a marionette relationship between the heavens and what happened on earth. And so can you picture these magi? They've been studying the heavens and somehow, someway, and there are so many theories, I'm going to talk about this in just a moment, but there are so many theories about how the star did what it did and how they followed the star, but needless to say, the scripture tells us they were mega chest-bumping, happy, overjoyed, don't care who sees them kind of a joy when they recognized that the star now connects to Jesus. That what they had trusted in, that marionette relationship between astronomical movement in the heavens and God's king being born, and when those two come together and the linkage is definitive, they lose their minds with joy. Their journey, whether it was from Petra, which was 280 miles away by car, or if it was from Iran and Babylon where some people believe they came from, which would have been, according to some, a two-year journey. No matter where they came from, the fact that the heavens have now lined up with the birth of God's king blew their minds. They were overjoyed. The word for today is joy. And this week as I was moving around, I was kind of looking for joy. And I found joy at Sam's Club. 
And the way I found joy at Sam's Club is the following way. I was there with a friend of mine from City, and we were walking through, and they had these oversized lighted letters. They were huge. They were about this tall, and it was J-O-Y. And they were blinking. J-O-Y, J-O-Y, and then together, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, right? And I looked at those, and they were up on the shelf, and I thought to myself, who would ever buy those things? Now, forgive me if you did. I'm sorry. This is style. It's stylistic. But as I was looking at those, I thought, wouldn't it be awesome to bring them home and stick them right in my front yard and have those things going, J-O-Y, joy, 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 J-O-Y. My wife would have made me take them down, but I really wanted to, and that's no common, again, it's style. It's all about style. (laughs) But I looked at those and I thought, they'll be there long after Christmas. Reason why is, is joy is a real thing. We're going to talk about that. But there's something about Christmas where Christianity finally gets brought together with joy once a year. Once a year, it finally happens. Even though Jesus talks about joy a ton in his ministry, he talks to his disciples about how his joy will become their joy in the Gospel of John, but we don't think about it until Christmas. But what I want us to do now is I would like us to read the context. The context for the text that we've already read. Because if you've sat under my preaching, you know that I believe context is almost everything. My son tends to disagree with me, but he is wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to read Matthew chapter 2. I would like for us to read the context for the text that we already read which is the liturgical reading for this morning. So let's read it together. Here's what the gospel tells us. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. The marionette relationship between heaven and earth had somehow actually worked. And it says on coming, and it says when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. They were exceedingly, greatly, mega overjoyed. 
And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Context is important. Part of the context is the people that are in the story. First of all, you have Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They're here in a home. Next, we have in our story King Herod. Who is King Herod? Herod is a fascinating person. What we know extra biblically, and there's a great extra biblical scholar by the name of Marty Solomon, he proclaims that King Herod was the richest human being to have ever lived. Richer than Pharaoh. That surprised me. What we know about King Herod is he's one half Jew and one half Nabataean. That'll come into play in just a moment. Not only is he mega wealthy, but he's half Jew, half Nabataean, and he was appointed as king over Israel by Rome. If you look at it, you'll discover that he's a guy who had a very strange way of living. What we also know, though, is that what Herod does in response to the Magi looking for the king of Israel, he calls the Bible scholars together. He asks them where the Messiah will be born. But he never goes to seek for himself. He knows the scriptures. The scriptures have been explained to him. He knows where the Messiah is to be born. Yet he never seeks for himself. At the end of this story, we discover Herod's response. Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 tells us Herod's final response, and it says this, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. He literally lost his mind. This is a word that depicts the ocean when it goes totally out of control. He was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. What you need to know about Herod is this. King Herod had killed three of his sons to maintain his throne and he also murdered his favorite wife. Caesar Augustus said of King Herod the following, it is safer to be Herod's pig than one of his sons. Herod, when he hears about Jesus, ends up trying to kill him. Extra biblical scholars tell us there were probably about 20 young boys that lost their lives at King Herod's hand that day. Another Bible scholar points out something else that I would have never noticed, but was phenomenally insightful, and it is this. From the moment the Magi go and declare Jesus as king, King Herod is never called king again in the New Testament. He's called Herod. So we have King Herod. The other context is we also have Magi. Magi are famous because of a song called We Three Kings. What you need to know is there were not three kings. We don't know how many there were. There could have been dozens. But they're called three kings because they bring three gifts. 
Gold, which represents kingship. Frankincense, which is all about Jesus' priestly role. And myrrh, which is a prefiguring of his death. You see, Jesus was offered myrrh on the cross mixed with water or vinegar. What we also know is that if you were to look at these three gifts, they actually show up in antiquity. There's an offering that's given by a Babylonian rule to the God of Apollo. And he brings those exact same three gifts into the temple of Apollo to worship him. So what we know is these gifts are to be given to royalty, but these gifts have also been used in worship 250 years before Jesus was born. We also look at the gifts that the kings have brought. And in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, Isaiah prophesies into the future and announces that kings from other nations will arrive and they will bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. Now the question is often, who were the Magi? I don't want to go into this in depth, but there are two primary theories. The first is the one I adhere to, that actually the Magi are Nabataeans. They're from Petra in Jordan. They're about three days' journey away, and you can read all about them being Nabataeans in a book that's entitled Mystery of the Magi by Dwight Longenecker. It's one of the best academic books I've written on biblical antiquity in a long time. But see, Herod was one half Nabataean. That explains why the Magi went to him to find out where the king of the Jews was born. They knew Herod. He was actually related to them. The other theory is, is that the Magi were from Babylon, that they were from modern-day Iran, and that they had traveled, and some extra-biblical scholars tell us if they were a huge entourage, it could have easily taken them well over a year to make the journey from modern-day Iran to Jerusalem to worship Jesus. But here's what we do know. Whether they are Nabataeans or they are from Babylon, here's what we do know. They are what's called magi. And in the scriptures, that word is magos. And whenever magos appears in the Bible, it is a cursed people. It is never positive. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 47, almost the entire chapter is dedicated to the prophet Isaiah prophesying against Babylon and its leaders because they trust in astronomy and astrology. And in Isaiah 47, 13, the prophet Isaiah brings his indictment where he says this, let your astrologers, magos, same word in the New Testament, Let your magos come forward. Let your stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you as Isaiah brings judgment because of their idolatry. In the New Testament, when magos is mentioned twice in the book of Acts, both of them are people that come under God's judgment. 
One biblical scholar said this, to Jews, magoi or magi were idolaters, short and simple. Nowhere in the Bible are these people praised. So isn't it stunning that in the birth of Jesus, God leads them to his son. God leads an accursed group of people to come to his son. And God does it by grace because they are seeking. They are truly searching. They've been watching the heavens. And when something shifts and something happens, they discern somehow that a king, God's king, has been born and his star is in the heaven. And whether it's 180 miles or two, up to two years, they look they seek, and God, by his grace, brings them to his son. But I want you to notice, they followed the star, they lost contact with the star, and it was the scriptures that guide them to Bethlehem. It was the scriptures. And then the star reappears. But listen, I believe with all of my heart that no matter where anyone comes from, if they truly are seeking God, God will reveal himself to them. And an accursed group of people show up and they worship Jesus and acknowledge him as king. What you must understand is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the reason why Matthew includes the Magi is they sit in juxtaposition to the king of the Jews, Herod. Herod does not even take the two-hour walk to go find Jesus. The cursed magi travel for two years to find him. The king of the Jews won't walk two hours. They have sought God for two years, and they find him. You see, Matthew is letting us know that when it comes to Jesus, there will be one of two reactions, and you see it throughout the gospel. Throughout the gospel, you see there are no small reactions to Jesus. People either want to worship him and follow him and submit their lives to him, or they want to kill him and remove him. There are no middle-of-the-road reactions to Jesus. It's either all in or all out. So when we talk about putting feet to our faith, that's where I want to begin. I believe that for some of us, we try to sit in the middle. We look at Jesus, we're not really for him, and we're not really against him. But the Gospel of Matthew begins by showing us two contrasting reports and two contrasting movements either towards Jesus or away from him. Magi seek and find and get incredible joy, whereas Herod is furious and wants to kill Jesus. What is joy? If joy is something we're talking about this morning, what is joy? Well, I will tell you that this evening there will be incredible joy in my life. You want to know why? Because the UVA men's soccer team is going to beat Georgetown for the national title for the NCAA championships 
I am a huge soccer fan. I go to the games because I get free tickets, and I love soccer. This evening, when UVA wins, it'll be during our vigil over at City Church. I will not be looking at my Twitter feed, I promise you. But what I can tell you is, there'll be joy. And it'll be the third national title for UVA, from basketball to lacrosse to now soccer. Amen. (laughs) But here's what I can tell you. That is temporal joy. Ask any coach. We've got coach, there's one sitting here now that has won national titles. And what he'll tell you is, it wears off. And where's the next one? As great as a national championship is, it's temporal joy. My favorite verse when it comes to joy is actually from the Older Testament. It's Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18. I want you to listen to what the prophet brings. Here's what the prophet says. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and I will be joyful in God my Savior. The reality of it is, is you begin to find in Scripture that there's a joy that's not temporal, there's a joy that's not based on cattle in the stall, winning national championships, as great as those are. There's a joy that can come in the midst of incredible loss and incredible pain. As I was working on this sermon, as I do every week, I meet with two separate groups of people. When I meet with them, we go over my sermon. The second group that I met with this week, there was a young lady who's there. She's there every single week. And believe it or not, her name is Joy. So when we met to go over my sermon, I asked her, Joy, tell me what you think about with Joy. Here's what she said. She said, Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. It's one of the things that actually is part of the Jesus follower. Galatians 5, 22 through 23 tells us this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next one? Joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. In other words, if you have joy, no one's going to come up and give you a ticket. No one, unless it's before 6 a.m., But here's what she said. It was fascinating to me. I'd have never thought of this. I said, Joy, well, what do you think about the fruit of the Spirit with joy? And here's what she said. She said, you know, she said, I look at those different things that the Holy Spirit gives us, things like patience. She said, you can actually work on patience. She said someone that discipled her with that fruit of the Spirit said, look, Joy, what you can do is the next time you go to the grocery store, pick the longest line and work on patience. If that's what it takes, I will never have patience 
If you're like me, I'll go to Sam's Club and I'm trying to judge which line goes quicker. And if I get the wrong line, I'm frustrated for hours. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? And you look at each one of these, but suddenly there's joy. And I asked her, what's the discipline for joy? And she said, I don't know. What is the discipline for joy? So what I did was I studied very quickly in the scriptures. And here's what fascinated me about joy. That when joy is present, it's either a gift from God like we see in the book of Galatians as one of the fruits of the Spirit or this. And this is so key for me now. It's this. Joy is connected to seeking. Over and over again in the Newer Testament, as I studied the word joy and I did an in-depth word study, what I found over and over again, there was a seeking, and when someone found, there was joy. There's the lost sheep in Luke 15. When someone finds that lost sheep, and when they find it, they're filled with joy, and they say to everyone, come rejoice with me. There's the lost coin. When the coin is found, there is joy. But then there's an invitation for other people to come and have that joy too and experience that joy, which led me to the next thought. And that is this. Joy is something that is almost always shared biblically. And isn't joy fuller when you share it with someone and they rejoice with you? But it led me again to really cement this understanding that so often in Scripture, joy comes because someone is seeking God. And when they seek, they find, and the joy is huge. And and that so clearly explains the Magi who either traveled 180 miles or up to two years, but when they sought and they were seeking as God always promises, when you seek him, you will find him 100% of the time. And these people sought him, and when they found him, there was incredible joy, incredible joy. But always remember that Herod never made the trip. He heard about it. He knew what the Bible said. But he actually ended up trying to kill Jesus. The Magi took the trip. They searched. They were seeking. And when they found him, they were filled with joy. The last thought I have about joy is this. Is that the last time the word joy appears in the Gospel of Matthew, it again proves that if you seek, joy is part of it. It's Matthew chapter 28, verse 8. It's when the women have been following Jesus, when everyone else stopped, they were still seeking him, they were still searching him. And in Matthew 28, verse 8, it tells us they were outside the tomb, and they were still following, still searching, still seeking. And when they were there by the tomb, the angel came and told them, Jesus isn't here, he has risen just as he said. And this verse is so close to my experience with joy. It says, so the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, yet filled with what? Joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. 
You know what I have come to believe about joy? When you seek him, you get joy. It's part of it. And if you're the type of person that says, Pete, I haven't experienced joy in a long time, my question is, have you been seeking God? I believe if you seek him, you will find him. And there's joy in that. But I was really challenged with, and my life parallels the existence of these women. They sought Jesus, and they found joy. But they also had other emotions too. Because we live in a broken, tragedy-filled, horribly sideways world. And what we see in these women are two emotions. We see joy, and we see fear. And here's what I can tell you is, when I read that, I went, aha, that's familiar to me. I know what it's like to live with great sorrow. But under that sorrow, there's also joy. I know what it's like to experience incredible loss. But in the midst of that loss, to have incredible joy. I know what it's like to struggle emotionally because of something. But in the midst of that struggle, as I seek Jesus, I find joy. They're both there. Fear, joy. Struggle, joy. Heartache, joy. They're both there. But here's what I've come to believe. Even though this is here, this is what gets me through. This is that low hum, the low hum of a constant joy of knowing that Christ is with us and that Emmanuel, God truly is with us. Would you stand with me? As we stand together, I'm going to ask that we would all take a moment. And as we take a moment, that you would close your eyes and you would open yourself up to God. If the Magi can find Jesus because they were seeking him, I believe with all of my heart that God in this moment can bring people to his son to experience this exceeding mega, mega joy. But as we close our eyes, we open up our hearts. I'm going to ask that you would take a moment in God's presence, and if you've not been seeking God, please take a moment through prayer to seek Jesus. Seek Him. Seek Him. And the worship team's going to lead us in joy to the world. And as we sing and worship that together, I ask you that you would seek with an open heart let God's joy fill you. It's not a temporal joy. It's a joy that can coexist with every other emotion in our lives. It can be constant in the midst of everything else we face.